0: Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, does it? Doesn't. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Faster.
1: Good evening everybody, welcome to Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa behind the boards, science advisor Matt Moniz along, and we have a special guest with us as well, we'll get to that in a little bit. And of course Matt Moniz, you were not here last week with us uh, when we spoke to Rick White and Linda Thornton about the Bell Witch Haunting. No I wasn't. Because you were on location, Yep. and we are going to dedicate an entire program tonight to that location Matt was at Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Louisville, Kentucky, or as they say down there, Louisville. They don't. They get mad when you say Louisville. But uh, he was down there investigating the Waverly Hills Sanatorium. You might have seen that sanatorium investigated on Ghost Hunters, the first episode of the Back Nine of Season Two, as they call it, and actually a little bit of a. Uh, Interesting information. There will be another season of Ghost Hunters. For those who were worried, I, I found out earlier this week we can't get into any more than that, but uh, there will be more Ghost Hunters, so don't worry about that. But uh, we will talk to Charlie Mattingly, who is one of the owners of the sanatorium. Took over in 2001 uh, after it had fallen into some, you know, some sketchy hands. We'll get into all of that, but it is reputed to be one of the world's most haunted places. So we will talk about the various uh, incidents that have happened there, we'll talk about some of the investigations that have been done, as well as the investigation that Matt conducted on Memorial Day. A little bit uh, of an interesting day to go out in search of the dead, Memorial Day. Appropriate. Did did, uh, did you feel any differently because it was Memorial Day? I mean, did you feel like... May- I mean, I know that you're always respectful toward spirits, but did you feel like maybe on, on a day like that you had to be a little bit more aware...
2: I was actually daunted by the sheer size of the place.
1: Well, it is incredibly large. I mean, even if you watch the episode of Ghost Hunters, which is online now, uh, sci-fi.com slash Ghost Hunters, you can watch it there for free. And it'll also be on, again, this Wednesday night at 8 o'clock prior to the airing of Spooked, which is a new documentary about Waverly Hills being uh, shown on sci-fi as well. But they were... Amazed, uh, Taps was amazed at the size of the place when they pulled up. It was bigger than they had planned on having to investigate, and that was with eight people.
2: And five days to do it.
1: And with, you know, countless uh, pieces of equipment, they brought their full arsenal. Whereas when you went, it was just two people <laughs> trying to cover all that space.
2: Two people with basic, simple equipment, but uh, we managed to get some stuff out of it.
1: And, of course, you did capture uh, an interesting EVP, which we're not sure exactly... What you may have found, but we're going to put it out there a little bit later on in the show, play it for people to hear so that they can make their own determinations. And I know that there's many different paranormal groups out there that listen, uh, especially our friends at NEPVRG who like to take our EVPs and clean them up a little bit. We invite you, any group, to take the things that we play on the air, to take these EVPs, to clean them up however you want to clean them up, to play them however you want to play them, make your own interpretations, and get back in touch with us. You can go to our website spookysouthcoast.com, join up on our message board, post stuff up on there. You can also email us Tim at spookysouthcoast.com, Matt at spookysouthcoast.com, and for Matt Moniz, science advisor at spookysouthcoast.com, or just send it to all of us at once crew at spookysouthcoast.com. There's so many ways to get in touch with us, so please we invite you to to do that to you know investigate uh, your own local hauntings and uh submit w- your findings to us and
2: get permission first.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and of course you got plenty of permission in advance to visit Waverly Hills because uh I mean quite frankly you might have gotten shot if you didn't. Uh yeah. <laughs> with, with the way they have that place secured. So uh Matt Costa has been running around here. We've been uh sending him around uh <laughs> still still not working out for. Him. Well anyway, we do have the EVP's from the Ellis Bowl Cemetery that we promised you. Uh, Matt, you do have them by other means, correct? Correct. Okay. So what happened is I told I told him all week long, I said, you know, make sure if we're going to play these that you put them on a CD. We don't want to just run them off the technical equipment that we use here in the studio. So I said, you know, have a CD backup because, you know, we have problems playing them sometimes. He and, brought the case. And, well, he did it. He put it on a CD and he had it with him when we came in here and now all of a sudden it's disappeared. It's not that CD face down over there behind the keyboard, is it? Aha, we don't want to play that. That sounds like... uh <laughs> Is that really it? No. Oh, okay. All right. So we will play them through other means. Now let's back up a little bit, and we'll talk about our trip out to Ellis Bowles a couple of weeks ago. We were on our way here, actually conveniently, to uh do the show where we talked about EVPs. And we thought we would take a step back in to... Um, try to see what this mary character is that we had on our first evp uh and again we did find a grave mark marion right behind where we were standing when we captured that first one but uh taking us back through it matt why don't you walk us back through what happened again uh when you guys discovered this other uh tombstone
2: um matt costa came up to me while we were looking at uh marion's Matt said, uh, there's a funny symbol on on this headstone. Can you take a look at it? So I walked over, recognized it as being uh, one of the Masonic symbols, uh, uh, basically a pyramid with a uh, sun in the middle, uh, or a god's eye as sometimes it's also called. Uh, The Masons had used that particular symbol back in the 1800s, and uh, it was also kind of usurped by the Illuminati, who were rivals back then? That were the major downfall of the Masonic uh, lodges that had basically founded this country. So I asked, you know, I said to Matt, you know, it's a you know a Freemason symbol, and we asked, you know, are you a Freemason? Now Matt and I were standing there. We didn't hear anything while we were standing there. We decided to walk over to where you had walked off to off to the back right corner of the uh, cemetery
1: that was chasing shadows i think over on the other side yeah
2: a lot of shadows to chase when you're doing this stuff but um we got up with you and then we came in and did the show i didn't really have a chance to really sit down and listen to the recorders that i had until we got done with the show that night i was sitting in bed well laying down in bed with the headphones on listening to the recorder and we came I came to that part and I heard that. Sat immediately up in bed, said, "Whoa, what was that?" Played it back, grabbed the other recorder because they were both with me. Got to that point on the tape and was like, "Holy moly!s I got it twice on the same, you know, the same EVP on two separate recorders."
1: And so we have uh, the different various recordings of it, uh, Matt. Let's try to find the one where it's just uh, the first digital recorder, just the straight up raw. Are you a So we caught a little something right there. You can hear a little bit of something. Now, that was the first recorder. Do you have the second recorder's file? Because there were two separate recorders, like Matt mentioned, two separate digital recorders. One was in
2: high quality, the other was in Superplay.
1: Okay. And here's the other one. Are you a so there you can hear it again. So we were a little bit curious about what it was that was being said. Um, I mean, it sounded straight up when you first hear the audio like Freemason, like it's another male voice repeating the same phrase. Uh, so we did have it sent out to our friends at NEPVRG. They cleaned it up. We played that one for you last week. If we ever that one again, Matt, yep. we'll play that one more time.
2: Are you a Freemason?
1: Okay, one more time. There, pay particular attention because they cut Are out the space prem- in the middle.
2: Are you a Freemason?
1: They 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 boosted it up and they played it right after the question. So, so that was the cleaned up stuff that we played for you last week, and we promised you that we would have the audio from the third recorder because while Matt Moniz was holding both of his digital recorders. Matt Costa was carrying an analog recorder with him, and he caught something even more interesting. So let's see if we have that there. That was the noise that he caught in the same exact spot, uh, time time stamp-wise, of where you got Freemason. He just got that noise. And there's also a a small whistle in A whistle beforehand, which...
2: Well, I can hear a whisper saying Freemason before the other word. Play it again. If you listen very carefully, you can hear it. Are you a Freemason?
1: So there's now... (laughs) We didn't realize it when we first listened to the analog. Uh, Matt called me this morning, basically, and said, There's two. So there is the whistle of Freemason, and then the louder voice. And what's interesting is the fact that the louder voice is on Matt's analog, and it's less clear than the softer voice that's on your digital recordings that actually says Freemason. Correct. So it's clearer further away. It's almost like, as I did last week, improper radio technique. It's almost like the spirit was right up against Matt's microphones. (laughs) And it had to be a little bit further away to to be able to hear what he's saying. So extremely interesting stuff. We have all these files logged on our computer. So if any group would like to get a hold of them and check them out and analyze them a little bit more, just shoot us an email, SpookyCrew at or each one of us individually. It's all on our website. So what I had Matt do is because all three of these uh, recordings, they all fit time-wise. Like you said, one was – Super quality, one was high quality, so it was a little bit off in terms of trying to match them up. And then Matt having an analog, it's a little bit slower. You know, I mean, technically speaking, a tenth of a second in yeah, those to, type of things. To the average person, you don't really notice it, but when you start getting into some of this audio production stuff, it makes a difference. But he tried uh, to merge all three together, so you can see that they do all happen at the same time. So let's see if we can fire that one off. I'm So, as you can see, they did all sync up. They did all happen simultaneously. Uh, Now, we were thinking um, of all the different ways people could try to discredit this. We were trying to think of all the different possibilities. Uh, I felt that somebody might say, to me, it sounded like the Freemason being repeated was in your voice. I'm not saying that it sounded to me like you said it, but it sounded to me like they were using your voice. You know what I mean? How sometimes... You, you hear these EVPs and it's a mocking, it's a mimicking. Right. So I got that out of it myself. It was just a deeper male voice. And so when NEPVRG uh, did their analysis of it, uh, Matt Cinsigali, who is the founder of NEPVRG, said to me that when he analyzed it, the hertz range of the voice is more akin to a female voice. You know what I mean? It's, it's right. a deeper male resonance but it's actually in the audio range of a female voice. He said similar to his wife's voice. Now, I've never heard his wife's voice, so she could sound like B. Arthur for all I know. (laughs) But I I doubt she does if Matt's saying that it's in a different voice range. Matt, don't play this part of the show for her, okay? Thanks. But so if there is a female voice, it's almost interesting to speculate that perhaps whoever this female was that spoke to us the first time, this Mary or Marion, as we're working on the assumption of – We were walking around trying to get her to speak to us again, so maybe this is just more of the same of of her tricks.
2: Well, if you think about it, we've got essentially five EVPs, potentially, on two visits.
1: Exactly, which that's just unheard of. I mean, there's groups that are pretty jealous of us right now because we've gone out there twice and captured something both times when there's other groups that have gone out there and, and come back with nothing, you know, multiple times, so... We apologize. That wasn't our intention. Uh, We're not trying to show anybody up. That's not what we're all about. We're here to be a resource for different paranormal groups to get their word out to the public so we can figure out what exactly is going on here. But we wanted to just go out and do a little bit of this ourselves so that we can know what it is that we're talking about. I mean, Matt Moniz has 20 years' experience investigating this stuff. Matt Costa and I have kind of been armchair parapsychologists for a long time. But we feel that we need to get out there and and just experience the procedure. I mean, you
2: guys are doing a great job.
1: Well, we thank you for that. But I mean, just in terms of the, you know, knowing the various different subtleties of an investigation that you might take for granted, uh, such as, you know, the first time we ever tried to capture EVPs was at the Millicent Library here in Fairhaven, and my stomach growled. And we picked that up on the digital recorder, and I was convinced that we had some sort of demonic moan. So, you know, as we've learned a little bit, you pick up on these things, and now we feel that we're, you know, more well-versed to talk about it, so...
2: Well, you put it this way. I consider you guys one step ahead of skeptics. At least you guys get out into the field.
1: Well, I, I'm not one of those people that wants to say, like, you know, taps uh, on ghost hunters. They say they're out to disprove a haunting, which is a fine approach for them to take. But it's
2: no, the appropriate approach, but I'm saying I'm talking the armchair skeptic, mm-hmm. the person that just... You know, reads other people's stuff and never even bothers to actually physically do any research, and, and just and ju- you know takes other people's
1: he- word for it. Right. I mean, our our goal here is to try and make people feel comfortable talking about the paranormal. Uh, we want people to share with us their stories, and of course, the phone lines are always open during Spooky South Coast, 508-996-0500. 508-291-0500. And, of course, you can catch us usually on the Internet in our live chat message board, but it looks like we're having some trouble logging in tonight. Uh, but, you know, we invite people to share their stories, to share their experiences, their questions, uh, whatever they would want to talk about in relation to the paranormal because we want to figure out what's going on. I mean, it bothers us to have this stuff happen and say, why is that? What is that? What are they saying? Why are they saying it? You know, how is this happening? And, of course, we've only captured one voice. I can imagine the more than 63,000 voices that can be heard at various times at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium. So we will get into that with Charlie Mattingly, owner of the sanatorium. I will we'll also talk to you our science advisor, Matt Moniz, who was there investigating, and uh, his fellow investigator, Staff Sergeant Joseph Gonski, U.S. Army Retired. He will talk to us a little bit, too. you like the way that that sounds when we talk about an investigation. We say, science advisor Matt Moniz, U.S. Army staff sergeant, retired. So, I mean, it's legitimate, really. It's not, it's not two hacks behind the radio mics like Matt Costa and I. <laughs> all right, so stay tuned. We'll be back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
0: Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. into my brain assuring me that I
1: Stretching it a little bit there. Well, oh, sanitarium, not quite the same as a sanatorium. We are stretching it, but it's still a cool song, so that's really the basis of why we wanted to play it anyway. And Plus, we wanted to see if Lars Ulrich would uh, threaten to sue us for playing Metallica music without his permission. So, All right, Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa, Matt Moniz, and Staff Sergeant Joseph Gonski, U.S. Army Retired, all here in the studio. And joining us on the phone line is Charlie Mattingly. He is the owner... Uh, along with Tina Mattingly, of the Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, we're going to speak with him about the, what would we say, one of the top ten, is it? Top five, world's most yeah. haunted places? All right, so let's get uh, Charlie up there on the phone. Good evening, Charlie. with us?
3: We're on the top five.
1: <laughs> top five. There you go. Sorry, I had a little bit of a trouble there with the phone. Okay, now, so... Right now, Waverly Hills is kind of a hotbed for attention uh, when it comes to paranormal investigating. You guys are actually conducting a tour right now as we speak.
3: Yeah, uh, right now as we speak, we have uh, people in the building and walking through. and uh, We uh, set it more up as a tour, and we explain the history of the place and some of the past paranormal uh, events that have happened up here and then from there, the more serious uh, ghost hunters will uh, schedule to come back like later at night and do their own investigations.
1: And so basically, you guys just have to stay up all hours of the night to accommodate these various groups and, and people that are interested, I guess.
3: Well, if we didn't spend, stay all night with the people who are interested, we'd be sp- st- uh, staying up all night keeping the trespassers away. Because as this place gets more uh, popular, uh, we've come to find out we have to have 24-hour security around the place just to keep the vandalism and theft and trespassers away.
1: And I've noticed from doing some research online that a lot of uh, your security people that you do have volunteer their services.
3: Uh, Yeah, We're 100% volunteer. Everybody that's up here volunteers all their time, and we pay no one. Uh, So if you uh, come up here as a volunteer, you truly are a volunteer.
1: And uh, you and Tina, when you purchased the property in 2001, you basically were reversing some of the damage that had been done by the previous owner.
3: Uh, that's correct. We bought it uh, about a week before it was scheduled to be uh, torn down. They were going through the procedure to uh, get the building condemned so they could tear it down. Uh, they had to do that because it was a it's on the National Historic Register. And we stepped in before they started tearing it down and bought it from them and then started uh, Repairing back as quick as we could, uh, all the damage that's already w- was done to the building.
1: And I, I guess, from what I understand, there was a gentleman named uh, Robert Alberhasky who wanted to build the world's largest statue of Jesus Christ on the site. And then when when uh, he couldn't really get it going because it was a, a historic site, uh, he did everything he could in his power to get it condemned.
3: Well, um, that's yeah, that's pretty. That's uh, condensing the story down. That's basically what happened. Yes.
1: And so, like you said, you, you kind of had the 11th hour saving of the property. Now, were you able to, I mean, it must have been a huge purchase for you financially.
3: Uh, well, uh, it wasn't a giant financial um, a problem uh, other than we couldn't get financing on the place because uh, um, it doesn't have an occupancy certificate and it is a commercial piece of property and banks won't lend money on commercial property unless you have collateral that is worth the amount that you're borrowing. And, uh... They uh, considered the worth of Waverly Hills to be zero because it could not be occupied.
1: Ah. But still, you need a huge amount of donations in order to fulfill your dream of restoring Waverly Hills to what it once was.
3: Oh, yes. It'll take millions to get the place back to where it needs to be. But uh, uh, we had a very slow start when we first got to the place. Uh, just uh, getting the building secured and getting the, uh, the local government to allow people to walk into the building. It had a binding element that restricted anyone from going into the building unless they were on workers' comp and they were a worker. And slowly we uh, improved the conditions of the building, such as taking out all the asbestos and and sealing it up and and all the dangerous things that could fall on a person. And when we got all those um, uh, problems addressed, the uh, city sent in the fire inspectors and a few other building code inspectors and then they waived one of the waivers that made it uh, able for us to have tours where uh, people could walk through the building.
1: Well, a little bit later on we'll give out the information for people if they want to make a donation to help restore Waverly Hills, and I know that the Spooky South Coast family out there will do what they can. So this building actually opened in 1926?
3: That's the date that the main building uh, that's still standing today uh, was, was completed. Uh, there were quite a few buildings on this site way before 26 that were part of our um, uh, um, tuberculosis hospital. But uh, the main building that's left, all the rest of them have been tore down. Uh, it, it was completed in 1926, and, and it was quite a, uh, a building for the area. There was nothing near close to this size in the whole state of Kentucky. And this was out in the middle of nowhere. It was off of Cinder Road about eight miles out of side of Louisville.
1: And was there a reason why they needed to have such a large tuberculosis hospital in that area?
3: Well, because at the time when this was built, uh, tuberculosis was considered the major killer in America. you know like like heart disease and cancer would be right now. And um, so uh, they had a problem. They just didn't have enough places to put all these people. And they kind of had to quarantine these people because you could catch it, you know, from one person to the other. So if you were diagnosed with tuberculosis uh, from a doctor, you were given a slip of paper and you had 24 hours to, uh, to report up here to Waverly Hills. And if you didn't, they had a, like a little police force that would come and get you and bring you up here.
1: The TBPD, as it were.
3: Yeah, more or less, yeah. You, you didn't really have a choice because they didn't want to leave you out in the public uh, infecting other people.
1: And from what I understand, that area of Kentucky is a lot of, uh, at least at the time, a lot of swampland, a lot of low valley area that would kind of really help that TB bacteria to grow.
3: Yeah, it, it, was, it was a good hotbed for it because it, it's in the Ohio Valley. A lot of the, the major uh, air streams just pass over the top, and a lot of humidity stays into the valley. So it, uh, it made it a place where uh, tuberculosis uh, could flourish pretty well.
1: And it also makes it, being a swampland and having those type of conditions, a great place for the paranormal to fester. And uh, during the time at Waverly Hills that it was open, it was open until 1961 as a tuberculosis hospital.
3: That's correct.
1: And so during that time, about how many patients uh, went through and, and stayed there?
3: Well, we we have records here that, that we don't have all of them because a lot of the records were lost in, in a couple of different floods that, that were here in Jefferson County. But uh, we, we are uh, guessing and we have estimated through two or three different sources, it was right around 63,000 people that passed through this building.
1: And so all those spirits uh, that still possibly remain uh, within those walls as well.
3: Um, yes, that's correct. And, you know, we, we've interviewed uh, people that were up here, like, say, in the early 30s or late 20s that were children up here, uh, had uh, children's tuberculosis, and there was a special uh, building on the side of the main building. And, and uh, when they, they came up here and we interviewed them, they talked about all of the ghosts then. Uh, the, the children would all talk about, you know, when they'd be sitting in their bed in their ward and they'd see the ghosts float down the hallway. And uh, he said, back, back then, even when they were they were children, they were terrified of the place.
1: Now, that's something interesting that I haven't heard too much about, is the fact that while it was open and functioning, that there was a paranormal presence there. Um, I mean, I know, you know, science being what it was at the time, it was a little bit more rudimentary, but was there any kind of record of that kept uh, kept in the hospital?
3: Oh, not of paranormal activity. That was something that they, they wouldn't talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, anything like that was, you know, just... It would be something that you know that would be hush hush and just wouldn't be discussed most of the time. Um, but I and, wonder
1: I wonder if it would be swept under the rug or if maybe some of these uh, patients that were reporting these incidents might have been seen as delusional or as having you know their sickness affecting their brain. I mean maybe there was uh, like a psych ward type section for these people that have seen this.
3: Well, my father worked up here and he started working up here in 1937. And he said that, you know, when people would come up here, uh, that it would affect them uh, mentally because they pretty well were given like a, as they looked at it, as a death sentence. They were sent up here to die. They were sent up here to get away from the main population, and there wasn't a cure, and so most of them died. And so as you're sitting here just every day, sitting in your bed, staring out the the screen windows, That's the, the building was what they called an open-air hospital. It didn't have windows on one side of it. And they just had screens where fresh air would blow through all the time. That was part of your treatment. They would just sit there all day long just, you know, staring out the windows. Or if you were in better shape, you know, they had, you know, arts and crafts for you to try to do. But, uh, you know, it it would affect your brain and just and it would affect people in a lot of ways. And my father said, you know, when we have somebody that would be on the ward that would, you know, being affected like that or causing problems with the other uh, patients or getting people upset, they would kind of move them off to different areas and and try to give them a little bit of help to try to calm them down too so they could settle in with the fact that they had tuberculosis and they were probably going to die.
1: Well, as you said, fresh air was part of that therapy. Uh, What's important to note, what a lot of people might take for granted is there were no antibiotics at this time. You know, there was no
2: or... Uh, yeah, no,
1: and there was no treatment program like we would have today in the rare instances that TB pops up. You know, it's kind of like uh, getting rabies. There's a series of injections and, and different medications that you take. But, I mean, back then there was nothing like that. So they were basically trying whatever they could to either help defeat the TB as much as they could or to at least make the person comfortable until they passed on.
3: Yeah, that's that's correct. It was not In about 1956 is when when all of the vaccines were out there and really working well. But before then, uh, the major treatment was that you were supposed to get as much rest and sunshine as possible and fresh air and good, balanced meals. And this place, you know, according like, to my father, used to work in the kitchen, said that it was the best meals that he'd ever seen anywhere. He said, you were just treated the best up here. And uh, he, he just couldn't uh, say enough about how clean the place was and how much it actually helped people. He said, even though a lot of people died up here, it was a, a wonderful place where... Where people really tried to help you, and it was a sanatorium. A sanitarium, and that's a place where you go to get well. And um, my my father said that you know that just you know the sacrifices that people would make, like all the nurses that would be up here working every day, they were almost quarantined too because see they were around people who were infected, and so they came to work knowing that there'd be a good chance that they would catch TB and die. And, And and so that took a you know it took a special type of person to actually be a a doctor or a nurse up here, or as far as that goes, a orderly or ward that would be around all the infected people because you were really taking your life in your own hands that you might die from helping somebody else.
1: And not only that, not only were you taking that risk, but you're also investing yourself in a treatment program that, you know, deep down inside you know it's probably not going to really work. I mean, you're prolonging the inevitable. Some of the different therapies they tried, like uh, hydrotherapy, you know, they try to use uh, hydrotherapy to help cure some of the symptoms of TB, and the patient would end up with pneumonia or uh, some of these other...
3: Uh, uh, a pneumothorax is yeah. one of the treatments, and uh, that treatment was done up here, and it was uh, it was some of the experimental uh, surgeries were done up here to, uh, to uh, perfect that, and kind of what they would do, they figured out a way to go into one side of your lungs and force air on the outside of the lungs and collapse it. And then while that lung was collapsed, you would live off of the other side of your lungs, and while that other uh, uh, li- while one side was collapsed, it would let it rest so it wouldn't be constantly being used and they were trying to use that to uh, help repair that one side and then later on when when uh, the uh, this the side that you were living on would start to uh, to wear out and and uh, and get you close to death, they would take and then pump back up the uh, the um, the other side of your lungs so it would start working again and then they would collapse the side that you were living off of and they would alternate back and forth until your lungs would get better and that didn't always work but it was one of the treatments that they did up here
1: and they would try to put balloons into the lungs to to expand them more and then one that i found that uh, said that they used as a last resort was uh thoracoplasty is that correct is that am i pronouncing that yeah, i
3: believe you pronounced it right
1: and that would be where they would uh they would remove uh, muscle and, and ribs from the area to try to to try to open up the lung area more. And it said that uh, it was used as a last resort because fewer than 5% of the patients that tried it survived it.
3: Uh, that's true. It, it, did, it, it gave them a lot of relief, but uh, generally you didn't recover all the way from that. You would live longer, but uh, you, 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 um, you just didn't recover completely from it. And the pictures that we have of this procedure and the, and the patients afterwards – Kind of gruesome, because if you can imagine somebody with a bunch of the ribs just being removed, and what they would actually look like, it's uh, it kind of gruesome looking. But, um, you know, but they tried everything up here, and that's that's one thing about this place, is, is they, they were truly trying to help people up here and cure people, even though they weren't very successful until the 50s.
1: Now, uh, we're, we're coming up in a few minutes on the CBS News, so we'll have to take a break. But before then, I just wanted to – when you and Tina purchased the property in, in 2001, what was your – uh, reasoning for doing so was it to preserve it as a historical monument or or were you interested in the paranormal aspect of the building
3: okay i'll condense it as, as quickly as possible when, when i come up here to buy the place it was just to add in the paper and then i um told my dad about it because he told me all the stories about it when he was a child up here working and you know through his teenage years when he was up here too and um he he i brought him up here to see the place and when he came up and saw what terrible shape the building was in he just broke down and started crying so I took him home and then uh, as I took him home, he just said, well, Charlie, what are you going to do? He said, well, you know, if I can get the place cheap enough, which I ended up doing, that, that I'll just do the best I can to try to get the place restored. And my dad was very distraught about it because he remembered this place as just being wonderful and helping lots of people. And as uh, the next couple years went through, he had macular degeneration in his eyes and went blind. And then he died last spring. But uh, one of the little promises that I made to him is that I was going to make sure that either me or someone that I hand the building off to will make sure that it's restored. And so it's kind of a hokey thing, but it's, 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 that's my reasoning for being up here and getting this done.
1: Well, it's understandable. And, and how much progress have you been able to make thus far?
3: Well, we made practically no progress the first couple of years, basically because we were just doing everything we could to get all – see, there was no windows or doors in the building that had already been all tore out. And so we had to put doors back on the building and get all the windows boarded up. And, and uh, um, then we had to start working with all the local governments to, uh, to satisfy them on, uh, for the uh, abandoned building uh, codes that we had to, to stand by, keeping the people out of it. And uh, then we had the air pollution board for asbestos. So it took the first couple of years just to get the building so that, the, so that we, it was legal for anybody just even to go into it. And then the last couple of years, now that we, we've made friends with the local government, we've been allowed to do these tours, and since these tours have started up and they've allowed us to do like a little haunted house at Halloween time, we started generating some pretty good money, and so we take 100% of the money that we raise up here and we put back in the building. So far, we t- we've had one wing of the building that we completely put a new roof on, and we've put all new windows in that one wing too. But we've got three other wings to work on, and so we're, in, we're a quarter of, 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 the, of the way along to stopping uh, a lot of the de- deterioration from the weather, such as the, you know, the, the roof leaking and uh, getting in through the windows, the water damage and the falling and the freezing. So that's our first thing we're going to do is, is get the building more secured so the deterioration can stop. And then from there, we, we hope that we, uh, we can uh, find an investor or a, a bank that will uh, have enough faith in us to lend us enough money to start building.
1: And if you're fortunate enough to complete a full restoration, your goal is to keep it as a historic landmark and to continue these tours and other activities there?
3: Yeah, what, what our dream is that we hope that w- what happens, we hope that uh, we find some type of health research center, such as a cancer research or you know, even the World Health Organization, anybody like that, to move into the first floor and hopefully operate that as nonprofit in, in a way that we could, you know, that something that would be done in this building would help the public. And then once we got the first floor completed, then we hope to secure a loan for the second, third, and fourth floors in the part of the fifth floor, and turn that into a haunted uh, bed and breakfast. And we wanted to also run that as nonprofit, and then take all the profits off of running that, and then take it and turn it back into money to whoever is running the first floor for their health research down there. So the building could generate its own money to to. Uh, to fund its its own health research because we're hoping that, that somehow this building could give back to the community and, and try to help people like it did when it was originally built. And, and that's our hopes and dreams that that happens.
1: Well, it's definitely a noble cause. And, you know, we've touched upon the history of Waverly Hills. Uh, after we take the break, uh, we're going to have the CBS News. And then on the other side of that, in place of our usual segment where we do the Week in Weird, uh, because we have a, a significant date coming up on Tuesday that being 6606. We're going to put uh, play a little package for you that we put together on the coming of the Antichrist, the supposed coming of the Antichrist, and the revel- relevance of 666 to that. And then we'll join back up with Charlie, and we'll talk about some of the ghost stories, the hauntings of Waverly Hills, as well as uh, Matt and Joe's investigation last Monday. We uh, want you to stick around. Remember, you can call us, 508-996-0500. 508-291-0500 Online, com. We have a live chat message board there So we want you to get in touch with us uh, Give us your questions to ask Charlie Mattingly About Waverly Hills And uh, on the other side, we're going to have the news Then we're going to have the debut Of our new Hour 2 opening theme song Matt, is that what we're going to do? Excellent Yes. Excellent. And then uh, we'll have the Antichrist package And then more with uh, ch- with Charlie About Waverly Hills, so stay tuned everybody
0: Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast.
3: I can smell your I'm not afraid. You will.
0: The supernatural is something that
1: isn't supposed to happen. But it Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast, the world debut of our Hour Number Two theme song, as concocted by the silent assassin. Matt Costa, Production Monkey Extraordinaire. <laughs> Great job, as usual, really. And uh, coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear my attempt at some production uh, when we talk to you about the Antichrist. Now, Wednesday coming up, I'm sorry, Tuesday coming up, June 6, 2006, 6606. Somewhere along the lines, it became uh, acceptable to just drop out that zero and say that it's 666, that it's the quote-unquote, mark of the beast. Or
2: zero six zero six zero
1: six. I mean, you have to drop those zeros out in order to make it work, but they say that for some reason this Tuesday is the coming of the Antichrist. Now, why the 6606 of every century before wasn't the coming of the Antichrist? I don't know. Are we just, like, taking the chance each time that uh, that's going to happen? Uh, but anyway, there are some people that are, you know, fully utilizing the date to their potential. Of course, uh, The Omen 666, the remake of the original Omen film, comes out that day. Uh, that's convenient. Also, conservative pundit Ann Coulter is going to release her new book, Godless, The Church of Liberalism. She's going to release it that day as her little tribute to liberals, she says. Uh, musically, that's a big day musically, David Lee Roth is going to release his cheekily named Strumming with the Devil, a bluegrass tribute to Van Halen. Death Metal uh, also has a couple big releases that day. How about uh, the band Allegiance? I'm sorry, the band As Blood Runs Black with their album Allegiance and The Stench of Redemption by Decide. And of course, everybody's favorite death metal act, Slayer, will start its Unholy Alliance tour, preaching to the perverted. So, in addition, there'll also be a major event held by the Church of Satan in California, a Satanic High Mass at the Steve Allen Theater. I'm sure Steve Allen would like that if he were still alive. And also uh, there's going to be the Rockin' 666 Eve prior to that on Chicago's Radio Free Satan. And uh, if that wasn't evil enough, then the uh, authors of the Left Behind series of books are going to put out uh, the book The Rapture. The 15th uh, chapter in that series Uh, will be released the same day. Some interesting discussion about the Antichrist. You know, one thing that I want to throw out there, and it's been popular on the internet all week long and the weeks leading up to 6606, that George W. Bush, our president, is the Antichrist. And one of the major reasons that people use to promote that theory is that if you take the letters of his name, George Walker Bush Jr., it's six letters for each one. But there's only one slight problem with that. He's not a junior. His father's name isn't George Walker Bush, it's George Herbert Walker Bush. So he's not a junior and he's never been related, been suggested to be a junior. So, you know, if you're gonna go on that basis alone, no, George W. Bush isn't the Antichrist. Ronald Wilson Reagan, on the other hand, that works out, 666, six, six, so. Just throwing that out there. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's, uh, conservatives right now that wanna call in 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We're just throwing these theories out there. We're not saying that we believe them. Uh, but one of the accepted theories is that the reason why 666 was put in there as the number of the beast in biblical times was because the uh, the gentleman who wrote Revelations, I can't remember his name right now, but he put that in there as kind of like a little jab in the side of Caesar Nero, who you know persecuted the Christians, uh, the quote-unquote the saints uh and he was a, a blasphemer of god so they're saying that if you put the numbers up with the letters and it, the 666 would spell out caesar nero so you can make your own decision but uh right now we'll run this little audio package we have on the antichrist so and on the other side we'll take a break and then when we come back more about Waverly Hills here on spooky south coast
0: The devil sends the beast with wrath, because he knows the time is short. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666.
4: Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand, surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert a shape with a lion body and the head of a man. A gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs. While all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The duck trumps again. But now I know that centuries, twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Six is the number of man. God made man on the sixth day. The basis for all organic life is carbon-12, which contains six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons. Six is one shy of seven, the perfect number, the number of God, the day he completed his work. If one six is imperfect, Then three sixes are sinister. Six is twice three, the number of the Holy Trinity, mockingly suggesting that man or those who use man's number against God are twice better than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Therefore, Satan would use 666, the number of man, for his ultimate man, his weapon in war against all that is good. Has the Antichrist already touched down upon earth? Is he still to come? Will he be born on Tuesday thus, ready to impose Satan's will upon the world?
3: There's a touch of madness around here.
5: Paranormal, is that what they're calling your kind these days?
2: The revolution will be broadcast. The-
1: Welcome back to Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. So a little bit of a lengthy audio package. I got carried away with myself. I don't get to be the production monkey very often, so when I get my chance, uh, I go a little overboard. So let us know what you think. SpookySouthCoast.com. You can email us there. Now we're going to get back into the discussion with Charlie Mattingly, the owner of Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Louisville, Kentucky. Charlie, you still with us? I'm still with you. All right. And we want to... we. We wanted to set up the show, uh, Early in the show, we wanted to set up for people that Waverly Hills was not a negative place. It was not some of these, you know, mental hospitals that you hear stories about or these, as you mentioned, the difference between a sanitarium and a sanatorium. This wasn't a place where people were mistreated. It was where people sacrificed themselves and their own good health in some cases to help make the lives easier of the people suffering from tuberculosis.
3: That's exactly
1: right. So now let's get into a little bit more of the other side of things, both literally and figuratively, some of the paranormal activity that has taken place over the years. So, what was one of the first instances that you realized uh, upon taking ownership of the building?
3: Um, well, I wasn't aware of all of the uh, paranormal activity when, when I first got a hold of the place, and uh, it, it just came on me. Uh, I, I discovered it all myself. And then as I would discover it, then I would run into other people who would tell me similar stories. The very first thing that happened to me is I took a camcorder and I went through the building just to filming in general all the damage on the inside and outside of the building. And then when I went home to review the tape, all kind of stuff uh, in the tapes. That uh, Are you still there?
1: We're still here.
3: Okay. I found all kind of things in the tape that uh, the very odd. Um, you know, uh, different lights and orbs moving around, and, and I was wondering, what the heck is this? So I would go back to the places where I filmed to try to see if there were some discolorations on the wall or things happening, and, and, and there wasn't anything there. And so I sent this tape off for some other people to look at, and they said, wow, this is really interesting. And then from there, it, it just, it just every time that I went in there to do work, it was like somebody was looking over my shoulder at me or I'd glimpsed to the side and think I'd seen a person. And so I used to jump up and then, like, run after them because I thought maybe, you know, like a homeless person or a a trespasser or something was just walking through the building. But when I would take and go to run after the person or or see what, you know, try to investigate what I thought I saw, you know, it would, would like, disappear.
1: And that seems to be a common theme. Uh, During the news break and, and while we're playing our recorded segment, I was talking with our science advisor, Matt Moniz, and staff sergeant Joseph Gonski, who did an investigation last Monday and they were saying they had a similar experience where you know they would chase something and it would disappear before they could catch it i guess correct. correct yep and and so that seems to be uh, a similar thing too that happened to taps when they investigated for ghost hunters you know there's footage of, of Brian and Tango uh, chasing things that were you know things that were always slightly ahead of them through the building, and then, you know, the other investigators experienced it as well. Is that something that most groups and, and people that conduct investigations have reported?
3: Uh, that's almost exactly what happens to just about every investigative group that, you know, that stays in there and drives like to do an overnight investigation. The other things that happens just almost every single night to just about every group that goes in there, we have something that we call watching the shadows in there. And uh, we'll just stand real still in the hall and look down the hallways. And then, as you look down there, you'll you'll see what look to be like shadows moving around that some way vaguely uh, are close to a human figure. And um, and then, as you stand there and watch, you know, you'll see them move around. And then, so when say you got a, like a group of maybe five or six or ten people or whatever. And then when everybody in that group will look down the hall and then they all about say at the same time, I see it, you know, if you see like a figure, and then they would take their flashlights and turn them all on at the same time to shine down the light to make sure there wasn't a person standing there or some type of prop or something that was just blowing in the window, then nothing would be there. And uh, that's a real common thing that happens up here is, is they call them shadow people, and that happens just about every night up here.
1: And that was also uh, some phenomenon that Taps uh, discovered too while they were there filming. Steve Gonzales was chasing a similar shadow person up on the fifth floor.
3: Yes, yes, and uh, and there is a, the, and what we've noticed that there are some shorter, uh, like shadows, and they're like not a full height. It might be like about three foot tall, mm-hmm. and those you see those a whole lot more. And it's kind of fun, you know, when we get a group of people in there, we'll we'll take it uh, and if we see some shadows moving around, we'll take some, usually the person in the group. You know, there's always a person that's like more of a disbeliever. Mm-hmm. that's saying, oh, that's a shadow, that's something poking through the clouds or that's, that's a light shining from someplace else. What we'll do, we'll take that person out of the crowd and we'll ask them to real slowly walk down the hall while the rest of us stay at the other end and just watch. And then while we're watching, you'll see what looks like, Shadows that will come around them, and then when and then when the group of people will see the shadows stand around that person that's walking down the hall, we'll will will say, hey, do you feel a presence around you? Because all of us are right now watching some shadows standing right next to you, and then you and then it's just like just about like clockwork. That person will just get all kind of chills running all over them, and he'll run back to the crowd and say, by God, I believe you now.
1: It, it sounds almost similar. I don't know if you're familiar with the film Ghost with Patrick Swayze. It sounds almost like the the death scenes in that film when a person passes on uh, and those negative shadow spirits come around and envelop them and try to carry them away. Now, you're saying that these are shorter shadows. Does that mean that you suspect that they're maybe children?
3: Uh, We don't know, but, you know, sometimes they're not always shorter. Sometimes, you know, they're they're full height. They might even be taller than regular. But uh, are you still there? Absolutely. Okay. We must had a little beep on the phone there. But, uh, Either it, that or the
1: shadow people don't like you talking about them.
3: Definitely could be, <laughs> and uh, and it's so it it's it, it can be all different sizes, but but we see a lot more short shadows than the taller ones.
1: Now, one of the, there there are a couple of places specifically in Waverly Hills that are considered you know more. I don't want to say more haunted than others, but are definitely more active more active, and definitely a destination point for people uh, on an investigation. One of those is room 502. What is the history of that room and, and its paranormal significance?
3: Okay, well, uh, as far as the, the history on that room goes, we had an older fellow that was uh, in maintenance up here. His name was Thornberry, and just about everybody that was in maintenance up here was of uh, the Thornberry family. They live right down at the bottom of the hill uh, from, from the hospital. And he had just come to work, and he was a younger fellow, and he was up here with his dad who was in charge of maintenance. And uh, they heard about this nurse that supposedly killed herself up on the, on the roof on the fifth floor. And that's a, uh, it's a place where a lot of the nurses would hang out in, in this nice sunroom up there. And uh, there's the nurse's quarters up there where they would sit sometimes. And he heard that, you know, that she killed herself up there, so they went up there to see this woman. When they did, she had hung herself, but they saw blood all over the place. And from the conclusion, they found out that she gave herself an abortion. And kind of what it was, she was, this was back in the 30s, early 30s, and she was unwed and was having a baby, which was kind of like a no-no thing. You know, it's a, it was kind of shame, you know, put on to your family, if something like that would happen. So she thought that she could give herself an abortion, and she did. But, you know, it. Uh, she didn't do a very good job. She ended up flushing the fetus down the toilet, which went all the way out through the, the, the uh the pipe system in the building, and on out to the uh, the uh, like se- cesspool type uh, laterals that were at the bottom of the hill. And uh, this this older fellow that said he was a young man with his dad went down there and they uncovered over the top of these cesspools and actually found the fetus and went and buried it. And uh, so he says it's a true story that it really did happen. But uh, our odd things that have happened up here is we've had some uh, women who are pregnant, and even some women that didn't know they were pregnant yet or hadn't told anybody can go into this room and they start feeling sick, or if they're holding an EMF meter, it'll just start pegging and screaming. Uh, and it's it's a pretty common occurrence that happens with uh, any pregnant woman that uh, that gets close to the room 502.
1: And now, Matt and Joe, I'm pretty sure neither one of you are in the family way currently, but uh, what experiences did you have in 502 in, in your investigation?
2: In 502, uh, our EMF meter that we were using, we were using a tri-field EMF meter with a sounder on it. In other words, uh, this meter, you can set a baseline to it, and there's an indicator that uses a sound. Once it goes beyond baseline, it creates a frequency that's audible and that you can hear. Uh, very sensitive, very expensive piece. of. It's not like the regular ones that you see on taps where you just push the button and it's a digital. And, and,
1: and how did you acquire this? I got that through our friends at Capers. They, they, thank on, you. On, loan.
2: Yeah, on loan. Yes, on loan. Thank you. Uh, and um, when I was standing in front of the room 502, it was not, not that much activity going on. I stepped into the room. Very little uh, going on other than baseline, but what made it interesting is when Tina and um, Joe were standing outside the door, as soon as Tina started getting closer, the meter started going off higher, and Joe can attest to that. You know, it definitely was making noise. We got that one on video. Yeah.
1: And, of course, we're going to try and get that video uh, posted on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. We have yet to try the video blogging, but we'll see if we can make it work. And and so, Charlie, is that one of those places that is, you know, I don't want to say unnerving to people, but, I mean, is that a place where, you know, when people go through on the tour in an, in an investigation, they shy away from or, you know, they just spend a couple of minutes and it overwhelms them? Because I know that's what happened at TAPS.
3: Uh, well, everybody wants to go there. For, you know, that's kind of like one of the main attractions of the place is to, you know, go into the death tunnel, the actual tunnel that leads from the place and they want to go into to room 502. And then in the morgue area is a very active place for uh, the, uh, the, um, the, um, the sounds and the voices to come through uh, as is, you know, I guess you call them, uh, um, what, do you, what do you call those, uh, the, the EV, voices that EVPs. you hear on the tapes? EVPs? EVPs, yeah, I would say EVPs. But uh, what, what you'll actually hear is parts of words, and some people will, will play with the tapes and and, uh, and filter, take out fuzz and things like that, and you can hear whole complete words and parts of sentences. And uh, in that morgue area, they've been very successful of, of hearing all kinds of sounds and partial voices and partial words that, that can almost answer your questions, um, such as the last paranormal group that was here from uh, southern Indiana. They, uh, they, were, um, they were trying to talk to the spirits, and they were asking questions. And then after asking like 10 or 15 questions and not hearing anything, they said, are, are, are you here? Is anybody here? And then you hear something kind of funny on their tape. And then they took a little bit of the fuzz out of it, and they played it back for us up here uh, just a couple of days later after they left. And it says, Always here, just as plain as day.
1: Well, it's funny you should mention EVPs because uh, Matt and Joe, during their investigation, they captured what they believed to be one, and we actually have it to play um, for you and for everybody listening. Now, let's
2: qualify this. Yes, oh, set it right. up a little bit yeah. here. Uh, I had been following something around on that floor earlier in the evening. Um, I had tracked something to that room with the uh, EMF detector. To, to which room? Now, this is the, the fourth floor, right? Yeah, operating room. I believe it was... Yeah, operating room is on the fourth floor, correct, Charlie? That's correct. Is it at the yeah. end of the hall on the fourth floor? Right. And I was tracking something with the EMF detector all the way down there. I called uh, my buddy Joe to come down with me, and he's like, well, let's do a EVP recording. Now, we we had two digital recorders, the same digital recorders mm-hmm. that recorded our things also, at the Ellis Bowls.
6: As soon as uh, I entered the room with my camera on, my battery had died on me Yeah. as soon as Matt walked past me.
1: Which, of course, is a huge indicator that there was something trying to draw energy and sucking that power out of the battery. I'm assuming because you guys weren't going to go in there without fully charged batteries, knowing oh, your preparedness.
2: Yeah, we had everything ready to go. Yeah, and it, the, and it was like, and you can hear that on our recording, you know, <laughs> and we were asking questions. One of the questions Joe asked, are you the one that just drained my battery? But we had two recorders going, the same two we used at Ellis Bowles. hmm this EVP shows up on the one I'm holding but does not show up on the one Joe's holding and we're no closer than we are right now. The recorders were no about a foot apart. Yeah. Okay, and well we're what asking We're,
1: we're going to play first the one that didn't record it so that people can hear the situation and hear the, you know, the environment in which it was recording. So here's the first one without the EVP.
2: You might want to play that again. Yeah, it's real quick, you so. Say, say it now.
1: Oh. And then that little noise at the end was just Joe yeah. speaking after Matt did. Now, here is the, the one where they believe that something has been captured.
3: If you have anything to say, say it now. <coughs>
1: one more time.
3: If you have anything to say, say it now.
1: <coughs> real quick. It's just real quick. Something responds to Matt's question. So, again, any group out there that wants to uh, check that out, wants to tear it apart and... and analyze it and boost it and slow it down whatever you can do we welcome you to do it submit it back to us we'll make sure that we get it to charlie and tina so that they can hear it as well so and it, it is that something that people usually do when they capture the stuff they do like to bring it back to you and present it to you
3: yeah that we, we have everybody that goes into the building kind of sign a waiver you know saying that you know we're not responsible the ghosts do anything to you you know kind of, <laughs> kind of kind of silly but you know we haven't signed it and it also says if you catch anything paranormal a pitcher or evp that uh that you bring it back to us and let us use it, you know. That's, you know, not that we claim it as ours, but mm-hmm. we just want to be able to use whatever proof that you uh, come up with. And so, over the years, we've we've accumulated quite a few little small pieces of pictures and EVPs that are. And it makes for interesting conversation. Well,
1: and understandably, you sh- you should want to have that for your own archives.
3: Yeah, yeah and uh, something kind of interesting on that same floor, uh, the fourth floor where that operating room was. Uh, that is a room that is very famous for draining batteries. And uh, I remember one night I was standing outside uh, of the building, and and, um, I I heard, you know, some people go into that room there, they were were having like a little group of people, they were showing around the building, and this was late at night, and uh, they went into the room and I saw some flashlights appear and heard them kind of talking inside the room, of course I was standing outside on the ground floor, and then all of a sudden I heard all this screaming, and just screaming, and then like a herd of elephants running down the steps you know and we're pretty particular about people running down the steps because we don't want anybody hurt and then they came out the bottom door just flew the door open and just took off running straight for the parking lot got in their car and just spun gravel going all the way out and i run over and i says what in the hell happened he says well everybody that went into the room everybody's cameras flashlights and everything all went dim at the same time and went just practically dead." And then as they ran outside and were coming outside, everybody's flashlights were on and bright. And it just freaked these people out. And and I'm not even sure who all of them were, but I can you, they they didn't stop to to say anything. They just ran for their cars and left.
2: All right, Charlie. um, What I'm going to do for you guys is I'm going to give you a copy of everything we physically recorded on audio and video. As well as a, a typed out report that I will personally submit to you guys, well not personally, but I will personally send it to you, uh, and I also want to greatly thank you for uh, allowing Joe and I to uh, tour through your facility oh
3: you're very welcome like say we uh, we want to share what we have with everybody we
1: 're right. the same way with anything that we capture here in our you know limited investigations, and as we branch a little bit more. It's out there for everybody to listen to, to analyze. But, you know, like I said, too, I can understand where you'd want to keep a record of those things. Uh, Now, there's been some uh, film done that uh, isn't quite tied into exactly what's going on. One of those films is Death Tunnel, a film that came out uh, last year. And it references the quote-unquote death tunnel that's in Waverly Hills, Like you said, another one of those areas where everybody wants to go and check out. (laughs) What exactly is the history of that area?
3: Okay. um, As this building, uh, the main building that you can see up here now was sitting here. There was a lot of other small buildings around here. And uh, pretty much everybody was close by a window getting the fresh air. And so if you would happen to have like a Harstrong drawn carriage appear or a hearse of uh, some type of hauling away the bodies of the people that died, it would probably give everybody inside the building that had this disease probably, probably give them some depression and, and probably wouldn't really help their morale at all. So they decided that they would have a good way to get the bodies out of here. So they actually had a tunnel that went underneath one of the buildings that is now gone, but it, it went all the way down the hill. And it was actually a, a concrete tunnel that had a little small train track in it with a little rail car that was hooked up to cables that they could set a casket on it and it would lower it down to the bottom of the hill, and whether it was a crematorium down there at the bottom or a place where somebody at the bottom of the hill could pick up the body if you know, if the family wanted to. And uh, that just helped the morale of the place a whole lot. So it uh, got pegged as the death tunnel because uh, they actually used the tunnel to remove the bodies from the building.
1: And it also has a staircase kind of alongside that chute, too, where people can walk up and down, and that is part of the, the tour that you guys give?
3: That's correct. You can walk up and down the tunnel. It's uh, We've got it cleaned up, and so you can walk up and down.
1: And it's about 500 feet long, is that correct?
3: Yeah, it's 580-some feet long, and it's, uh, it goes down on about a 30-degree
2: angle.
1: So that's a, a long Easy descent to into the darkness. Down,
2: hard to walk up. <laughs> yeah.
1: that, 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 do you find that uh, you, you lose a lot of the tour there? Are there people that back off from that point once they start to make that descent?
3: No, they, they're just primed for the rest of the tour. They... You know the the people that come up here, they they just it's it's like when they're doing the tour, they can't get enough information and they can't see enough. You know, it's, uh, it's pr- we get, we usually get pretty uh, uh, enthusiastic crew up here that just just can't wait to see more.
1: And uh, another area of the of the hospital where there's some activity on the third floor is it true there's some spirits of children?
3: Well, that's where we see a lot of those shadows that we're to- talking about. A lot of them are on the third floor. And mostly, we see the shorter ones on the third floor. And at the end of that third floor, the opposite end from where the uh, the uh, operating room is on the third floor, um, there was a, a a large room at the very end of it where sometimes they would let kids uh, stay in that room there and play and do activities. And they would uh, they would be the children of the people who were on the ward on that third floor. So they would let their children come up and play in that room in the and the children's parents could come down and visit them there at the end of the of the floor.
1: And do you find uh, that out of all the, I mean, I know myself personally, out of all the spiritual activity that one can come encounter with, I think sometimes when it's the spirit of children, that's when it gets to be the most creepiest, in my own opinion, anyway.
3: Well, I, I can't agree more. You know, it's it's a, well, any type of death, and then it's, it's always more tragic when someone young dies. Mm-hmm.
1: And, unfortunately, that was the, you know, the mark of tuberculosis is that, you know, it's not age-specific. It was so freely passed.
3: No, it didn't discriminate uh, with anybody.
2: What about Timmy and his uh, playing ball? Oh, well, okay. Well, usually on the third
3: floor, what we'll do is uh, sometimes we'll leave a ball laying around on the floor up there. A lot of the balls just come up missing. We don't know if there's somebody stealing them or, or what. But uh, we'll we'll find another ball and lay it up there and... And as we go through, we'll just note where the ball is and what room or where on the floor it's at. And then when we come back and walk through again, we see if the ball has been moved. And it's just about like clockwork. The ball is always in a different place. And we can't always confirm that, you know, someone didn't move it or somebody didn't kick it or the wind didn't blow it. But it is kind of odd that every now and then, you know, the ball will move on its own. And it is uh, it is kind of unnerving when you actually see it happen.
1: I can imagine it would certainly freak me out.
3: Uh, it doesn't happen all the time. You know, it's most of the time when you come up here and you come up here, well, just walk into this room and look for the ball. If the ball is there, you'll just look at it and it won't do anything. But you know, but just the few times that it has moved, I mean, it, it it is very unnerving, you know, when you're just looking at the ball and you say, okay, Timmy, come on, and, you know, throw us the ball or kick us the ball. You know, and, of course, it just sits there and it sits there. And then this one time it will move. And, you know, it, it doesn't move very much. It, it just might turn over once or twice. And, boy, let me tell you, it just – Tens goose goosebumps over everybody, everybody's shirt sleeves.
6: Yeah, that's well, what I was trying to do that night was to get Timmy to play.
1: He, he wasn't having any of it, huh? Yeah. No. Well, it it, it I, I think that would probably just have me turning around and and because you know the the, the thing with children is it's the innocence behind it, you know, and and the fact that they don't comprehend what's going on really less than any other spirit can. Uh, it just really gets to me and really bothers me maybe it's because i'm a new father myself but either way we're going to take a quick break and on the other side we will talk to charlie a little bit more about waverly hills and we can find out how you can make a donation to help support waverly hills as well as how to get in touch with the mattingleys if you'd like to visit and conduct your own investigation so stay tuned here on spooky south coast
0: don't look now but spooky south coast is creeping up behind you right after this All right.
1: Final segment here on Spooky South Coast this week. you want to get in touch with us, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, online, spookysouthcoast.com. And, of course, you can check out our website all week long, download the show if you missed it. And, of course, uh, we hope that people nationwide and worldwide are listening to us uh, will want to make some donations to Waverly Hills. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes. But uh, first, let's discuss a little bit more the investigation that Matt and Joe conducted last Monday. And uh, you said Tina was with you? Was, was, was Charlie with you as well? or
2: No, Charlie wasn't with us. Uh, Tina was with us so the entire evening. This is the first
1: you've heard of some of the stuff they did to your building, Charlie. I apologize. Huh? I apologize for them. No, we I'm sure they didn't hurt Of course, no, they're no. very, very respectful, and uh, the, a lot of the local groups have kind of caught on to the fact that you know Matt is very professional in the way that he conducts these investigations, and he's been a, a positive influence for them. So, which is good because he's a negative influence on us and a lot of other areas as well. So,
2: well, we'll leave that as it is. Uh, what really got me was the first 15 minutes into the tour. Now we had. Uh, Reserved the building for the night, but the last tour that was going through, they decided to have us, you know, tag along just to get the layout of the place and a mm-hmm. little bit of history going down behind it. So, uh, Joe and I were hanging at the back of the group, hanging with the um, two of your volunteers that walk behind the group, you know how, so they don't have stragglers that wander off and get hurt. That's uh, correct. Uh, so, uh, Joe and I were hanging back with uh your volunteers and uh it was on the fifth floor when you come up the top of the stairs there's another doorway that's directly across from the from the stairs it goes uh into what is like a bathroom that has a uh some tub in it some and stalls some stalls mm-hmm. there's a door that opens up from the outside that not in the uh open area room where 502 is but there's a door that opens out onto the roof in where those stall areas are i was leaning in the doorway area and something walked off the roof right beside me if i put out my right arm i would have smacked it if it had a face and it walked right into one of the stalls and i looked at the one of the girls who was the volunteer you know it was like something just walked right by me and walked into the stall and i went charging in looking and there was nothing there And uh, later on, Joe was, uh, well, I'll let Joe speak for himself.
6: Then we got to the other end of the hallway near uh, room 502. And I forget your guide's name. I'm sorry. But uh, she was directing everybody's attention to the room where uh, Steve from TAPS had saw the legs walking by. Mm -hmm. And there was no glass or anything in there. And they were all taking pictures. And in one of the flashes, I seen a white shape at the very outside of that room and later on um when matt and i were alone i had him go out there to see the approximate size it could be and uh there was no definite shape to it or anything it was just a white glow maybe a mist or something like that that's what i got on that floor right there
1: and uh i actually think we have a call for charlie here so let's go to the phones uh, good evening around spooky south coast
5: hi how are you doing good how are you I'm pretty good um i'm I'm from Texas, and I'm actually like I can't really listen to you guys live so oh I'm understand. No. In to tell you, excuse me understandable um, I just want to call in and tell you about an experience that I had, okay, although I got to listen to some of it um and talking about Waverly Hills on the phone it was it's so awesome anyways um, I had an experience uh probably about a year ago um i have a two dogs and have a jackrest on a beagle, and they sleep with me every night and um I woke up in the middle of the night to both my dogs growling and facing like my closet area from mm-hmm. my bed, and uh, they just kept growling. And like I just kind of was like, "What in the world's going on?" And like all of a sudden, both of them went crazy and barking and stuff. And uh, my TV—I sleep with my TV on every night, and I put it on TV video. And if you turn off your TV and you turn it back on, it's on the regular channels, like cable channels. It's not on TV video anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, I started screaming because I was like really freaked out and my parents came to the room and they tried to get in the door and like my dad said the door wouldn't budge. And, uh, he finally, um, got it open and right when he got it open, both of my dogs like laid down and went back to bed. Like went back to sleep. And my TV came back on and it was on TV video, which doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I thought, <laughs> finally got the guts to call in and tell you about.
1: Oh, well, we thank you for sharing your experience. I mean, uh, unfortunately, I mean, the electronic devices are just open season for spirits. I and mean, they really can just manipulate them in any way they want because...
2: Energy can affect energy.
1: Exactly. They're just an electrical field. So, I mean, it doesn't sound like it was anything particularly negative that you had to worry about.
5: Oh, my dogs went crazy, though. I <laughs> it think, scared me because one of my dogs never barks or growls at all. <laughs> and he was barking and growling. And uh, it, like, terrified me.
1: I think any uh, animal is going to react to something in that manner. Um, whether it's negative or not. I mean, I know that you hear a lot of cases of of animals interacting with paranormal activity, whether or not the human ever even realizes it's there. So, I mean, I wouldn't really worry too much about that. But at the same time, you know, you want to be careful and you want to be cautious. And uh, if anything like that ever happens again, please feel free to share it with us, either calling in the show or, or via email.
5: Oh, and I had one question. And uh, Waverly Hills is the place that they had on Ghost Hunters, right? Yes. Uh, well, I was watching one part of that, and the lady had that I guess owned the place had said that upstairs, I think up on the roof, they had seen go- like uh, I can't think of the word now. Shadow people. The shadow people. Like, I don't. I, I'm from every other person I've ever heard talk about shadow people. I mean, it's honestly a question. Every other person I've ever heard talk about shadow people, it's not like they have a specific area they are designated to haunt or be. It seemed kind of weird that she had said that, and so I was wondering um, if y'all, if Matt and him had ever had seen any shadow people up there in other places or.
2: Well, if you were just listening to what we were talking about, that's when, what when I was just talking she, about being on the fifth floor.
1: She couldn't, oh, so it just, I, no, it's just no. It's it's Texas. <laughs> no, it's just very strange that you called in at the time when he was when he was discussing oh. it. That synchronicity right there.
5: Oh, I'm I'm
1: good like that. <laughs> well, I I know that you're a, a fan of listening to the show online, so mm-hmm. we'll uh, we'll have it up up tomorrow, and you can check back and and listen to some of the discussion about the shadow people, some interesting stuff. So we'll just oh. tease her like that to to keep her up and wondering all night long. There you go. All right,
5: sounds all right. good. Thank you. We thank
1: you for calling in. Stay in touch. Right. Bye bye. See, check that out, Charlie. You have fans all over the country. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, we're coming up on the last few minutes of the show here. We'd like to thank you for joining us. Why don't we tell people how they can get in touch with you uh, to make donations to Waverly Hills in the restoration process, and also how they can get in touch with you for tours or investigations?
3: Okay. Uh, well, how they can get a hold of us? They can uh, they can write uh, to Waverly Hills Historical Society at 4400 Paralee Lane, P-A-R-A-L-E-E, Paralee, and that's in Louisville, Kentucky 402. 402- we're also on the Internet uh, on WHS whshistory.com, and then we have a phone number up here to set up the tours, and that's at area code 502-417-4526, or the office phone number, which is area code 502-933-2142.
1: And we'll post all that up on our website, spookysouthcoast.com, so that people can have that information, because when you contribute to the restoration of Waverly Hills, you're not only contributing to the continued access uh, for paranormal investigation, but as Charlie mentioned earlier in the show, you know their grand vision is to have this be fully restored and become a nonprofit area that can benefit a clinic or or some sort of uh, medical facility. So, so it can get back to healing. Exactly. I mean, it it's. Interesting that a place that did so much good for so many people, but couldn't quite do enough, now might get a second chance to do just that. You know, it's like uh, where, whereas it couldn't help cure these people, maybe now it can cure some other disease. Now that we have tuberculosis, pretty much licked. So, yeah. Charlie, we thank you so much for for joining us, uh, especially on short notice. Uh, again, Spooked is coming out on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, a little bit more of a documentary look at Waverly Hills. But before that, you can catch the episode of Ghost Hunter. So that's uh, from 8 to 11 Wednesday on Sci-Fi Channel. Charlie, please stay in touch with us, and, and any time you want to join us again, just give us a buzz. That sounds
2: great. We'll do it. Right. And tell Tina that Joe and I said thank Thanks you very much. Okay, you can tell her yourself. <laughs> All right. Is she, there? <laughs> is, she, is she there?
5: Hello, this is Tina.
2: Hey, hey Tina, yeah. this is Matt and Joe.
5: Hey, how you doing, Matt?
2: How you good. doing? Joe's good. here, too. <laughs> well, we want to definitely thank you for sticking with us all that uh, Monday night. That was above and beyond the call of duty because you spent the entire weekend up with very little sleep, and you were so kind to us. We greatly appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it.
1: All right. Well, we thank you for joining us uh, again. As I said, Charlie, on such short notice, and uh, anytime you want to get in touch with us and and we'll make sure that you get a copy of all the evidence that Matt and Joe collected. So That'll
5: be great.
1: All right. Thank you very right. much, and and best of luck with your venture. And thank you. All right. And we want to remind everybody, next week on Spooky South Coast, right here at 10 o'clock on Saturday night, or after the Red Sox is what happened tonight, we're going to talk to Leanne Wilber, who is the proprietor of the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, which is actually the home where the Borden murders happened, where, you know, supposedly... Lizzie Borden took the axe. And so we're going to talk to her about the home, about the hauntings, and about her Ghost Hunter University, which is happening in July. If you want to take a course there and and learn a little bit more about ghost hunting and have a chance to actually investigate the Lizzie Borden home. So we will talk to her next week here on Spooky South Coast. You want to make sure that you check in for that show and also check in all week long on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, where you can get in touch with us, send us your evidence, your questions, your stories, or where you can just find out a little bit more about the paranormal. So for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, for Joe Gonski, I'm Tim Weisberg. We invite you to stay spooktacular, everybody.
0: The supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.